When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the 297th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Nick Kolakowski, novelist and editor of the pandemic short story anthology, Lockdown. Stay tuned for the interview. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen to audiobooks during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Reading and writing podcast special offer, get two audiobooks for the price of one with your first month of membership with code RWPODCAST. That's code RWPODCAST for two audiobooks for the price of one for your first month of membership at Libro.fm. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Nick Kolakowski, editor of, editor of the brand new anthology, Lockdown, Stories of Crime, Terror, and Hope During a Pandemic. This short story anthology was just published on June 16th, 2020, and features stories from Hector Acosta, Anne Davila Cardinal, V. Castro, and many others, including Nick. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Sure. If someone listening hasn't heard about lockdown yet, can you talk about this pandemic anthology of short stories and your intent behind the anthology? Sure. So this all started when I was talking with Steve Weddle, who was my co-editor on the project. And he originally had the idea to get a bunch of writers together and do an exquisite corpse to sort of just kind of keep everyone's spirits up during the initial stage of the lockdown in March. Um, and while we were talking about it, we got the idea to take it one step further, publish something that would where all the where all the, the the revenues would go to charity. Um and so we brought the idea to Jason Pinter at Polis Books and he thought it was a great idea, but he also thought that doing it as a series of theme short stories would be easier than an exquisite corpse because with a corpse where every writer is taking over from, you know, the previous writer for each subsequent chapter, sometimes they can go off the rails wildly. And all of a sudden, you know, your, your normal plot suddenly starts involving space aliens and character motivations get confused and so on. So, um, we decided to recast it as short stories sort of themed around a fictional pandemic um, and give the writers as much leeway as possible, which is why, for example, writers such as Hector um, or Gemma Moore, Scott Adelberg kind of did stories that were more in kind of a crime fiction vein. And then as the book goes on, some of our other writers such as V Castro and so on took everything to kind of a more, horrific bent uh, or a fantastical bent in some cases to kind of make it, um, you know, 
shading it more from crime to horror as the book goes on. And so how did authors respond when you approached them about the idea for this pandemic anthology? Everybody was really on board. And I think that was partially because all proceeds from the book are going to the Book Industry Charitable Foundation, Bink, um, to support booksellers and indie bookstores and so on through COVID-19, while a lot of them are dealing with their shutdowns. So I think, I mean, obviously, if you're a writer, you're approached by an editor to do something that is trying to help you know people out during a real crisis, you're going to go for it. But I also think that a lot of writers were responding enthusiastically because obviously COVID and lockdown and self-quarantine and so on were all things on everybody's mind. Everyone is living this on a mental, physical, emotional level. And I think um, for a lot of people, it gave them the chance to kind of really vent, for want of a better term, or to kind of express a lot of things that are rolling around in their head. Um, and and so you got a lot of people who a lot of these stories are very emotional. A lot of these stories, people obviously and clearly put a lot of their soul in, which is very exciting to see. But I think um, in contrast to some anthologies and projects I've worked on, it really wasn't all that arduous to try to persuade people to jump on board. Everyone was super enthusiastic about doing so, which is great. Great. Well, your short story in the anthology is A Kinder World Stands Before Us. Is it possible without giving too much away to talk about your story in the anthology? Yeah, absolutely. So right when the lockdown was beginning, I live in New York City and a lot of people I knew were fleeing. People who owned cabins upstate, people who had friends or relatives who had empty houses in other states. And so a lot of people left the city. And around that time, a lot of news story, a lot of local news stories were also emerging about how very rich people who lived on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and so on were also fleeing, only in their case, they were fleeing to their giant palatial houses in the Hamptons and in Connecticut and so on. And so I got the idea that my pandemic story, which I had to write pretty quickly, was going to be about a bunch of people fleeing the city, finding themselves in kind of a relatively isolated circumstance. And then as society sort of collapses outside of this little haven, how the people inside internally react and how things, without spoiling everything, kind of take a, a much darker turn. Um, the other, in writing it, the other thing that I sort of wanted and needed to do was, so when we gave the writers their sort of orders for the anthology, we gave them very broad parameters. We said that we just wanted, you know, a pandemic theme. And so when I was writing the story, other people's stories were, tra- were starting to come in. And so I wanted to write a story that kind of acted as connective tissue for a lot of the other stories in the book. So there are mentions and allusions and you can kind of fleeting glimpses of news reports and so on that link, I think, about eight or nine of the other stories in the book. And I kind of wanted it to be a little bit of glue, a little bit of connective tissue in there. And so that was my other thought as I was as I was writing it. Well, I'm sure you love all of the contributor stories, but is there one but are there one or two stories that you would like to mention for listeners? So Cynthia Paleo had this incredibly emotional story that serves as the capper for the entire anthology. It is an incredibly beautiful story. It's also as she sort of peels the layers away through the narrative, um, increasingly horrifying. And it's a riff on Peter Pan which is also kind of an amazing thing that somebody takes this, this children's story and turns it into something that still has a childlike innocence and power, but it's also by the end 
extremely sad and extremely terrifying. It's a real tightrope walk that she pulls off. Um, also, Angel Louis Colon um, did this short story, which it's is set in the second person. And it's, it's called Your List. And it's extremely hard for writers to pull off second person in a way that's completely convincing. And yet he does it. And it's a story that's, it's, it's terrifying. Um, and it's also really funny. It's about this guy who is locked in his apartment during the pandemic and he gets increasingly weirder and more insane and then bad things happen. And the use of the second person, it, it, it makes you feel like it's happening to you almost and that you are doing these increasingly horrifying and funny things as, as sort of things get worse and worse. That was a real, that was a real act that he pulled off. Um, Richie Neveras uh, did a story that was set in the Bronx a little bit after our fic- fictional pandemic sweeps through. And his story also, um, I guess the, as a New Yorker, I mean, the, this story also appealed to me highly because he sort of painted a vision of what things could like look like in a year or two if things really went bad. And so I found that one uh, very gripping. But I, I love them all. I mean, it's it's everybody really delivered. Um, and everyone delivered stories kind of at various stages of the pandemic. Rob Hart's story takes place at the very beginning. Uh, v. Castro's is, takes place in the world that looks completely different from anything we'd recognize today as a result of the virus. So it was, it was everyone did a wonderful job. Well, as you mentioned earlier, proceeds from the lockdown anthology will go to support Bink, the book industry charitable foundation, as it seeks to help booksellers recover from COVID-19. As we record this on June 26, COVID cases are spiraling um, upwards at an alarming rate. As someone watching the headlines, and obviously I'm sure you did a little research about pandemics for the anthology and for your story, um, how are you feeling right now? I am feeling a little bit apprehensive. I was during the initial stages of this pandemic, as I'm sure virtually everybody was, you know, I was, I was extremely nervous about what was going on. And my wife and I, we took all the usual precautions. You know, we, we basically made our front door an airlock and um, stitched together our handmade masks and things like that. And now, I mean, we, we sort of had that initial period where it seemed like everything was under control. Now that everything is opening up again, um, you know, we are, are unfortunately seeing this spike of cases, particularly in the U.S. South and West. I think, I mean, in terms of research for the book, I've been reading a lot of nonfiction accounts, such as the Great Pandemic, which is about the 1918 flu, which killed 50 million people. And the thing that has struck me, and I'm not sure whether to take comfort in this or not, is that everything that we are sort of going through right now, you know, the controversies over to wear masks or not, you know, the fears of a second wave, you know, the impacts of social distancing is things that societies have lived through before. I mean, 1918, we are almost following 1918 beat for beat. And there's something terrifying in that definitely, but also there's, there's something perversely a little teeny tiny bit comforting only insofar as, Societies have gone through this before, you know, and they've gone through viruses with a much higher mortality rate. And we will get through this. It's just a question of sort of how bad it might get in the interim. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm hopeful in the long term, but, you know, obviously I think as many people are, unfortunately, I think I'm, I'm a little bit apprehensive about what's been going on right now. Sure. Well, in addition to writing short stories, you've had several novels published, including Maxine Unleashes Doomsday and Main Bad Guy. 
If someone hasn't heard about Maxine Unleashes Doomsday, how would you describe your novel? It is um, a novel about the rise of artificial intelligence that is disguised as a rural noir that takes place from the, the initial chapters take place a few years from now, and it evolves to take place eventually over the course of about three or four decades. Um, it is a novel in which I tried to predict the future, uh, the, the hero Maxine, um, is is a survivor, for want of a better term, who lives in upstate New York and eventually becomes an outlaw in a very kind of degraded, collapsed future. I tried to take climate change into account when I was writing it. I tried to take the rise of artificial intelligence and machine learning into account, cybernetic prosthetics, all this other technology I spent a lot of time researching. Nothing about pandemics other than the waterborne diseases that come when Manhattan is flooded. So now it's it's... I think everybody who's writing any sort of near future narrative um, is wrestling with this and hopefully they haven't turned their books in. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Other publishers or editors yet, but I think... Um It'll be interesting to see how COVID sort of impacts everybody's writing going forward. Sure. So what are your earliest memories of reading in books? Good question. Um, When I was a little kid, my father, who was an English teacher, decided that we were going to read the Odyssey aloud every night. Um, And so I think my earliest memories beyond children's books of reading come with him and I sitting in bed, you know, kind of going chapter by chapter. We would alternate reading. He would read, and then I would grab a couple of lines. I mean, I was very young. I was not fully prepared to roll out whole chapters of it. Um, 
So I think that was sort of my one of my first formative and most cherished memories of reading. Um, and then when I got a little bit older, when I was about 11, 12, I started to discover Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Hunter S. Thompson, etc. So I would start to read these books before these books were then, in some cases, taken away from me. I remember getting it hands on a copy of Naked Lunch at far too early an age. And then, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, it was it was taken from me for a few years before I could uh, get it back. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, reading is, is one of my favorite things, and it has always been like that. Um, I like just having my, my brain expanded. Sure. So what was the path to publication for you to writing and publishing your first stories and novel? Had you always wanted to be a writer? I did always want to be a writer. Um, I had no idea what the profession would actually entail, but from the very beginning, it's something that I, I wanted to do. So I, my day job is as a journalist. Um, I have always been a journalist um, as an adult. Um, I started out freelancing for the Washington Post, uh, Washington City Paper, um, a bunch of journals and magazines like that. And then I became a luxury and travel writer for a little bit. And then after that, uh, I became a tech journalist, which I am now uh, in terms of eWeek, a couple of other prominent publications. In terms of writing fiction and books and so on, so my route to publishing is not traditional. Most people, you know, you write a manuscript, you get your agent, you sort of go up from there. What happened with me, how I initially started was I wrote a satirical piece from McSweeney's that reimagined Nietzsche as a uh, Midwestern restaurant bartender who is extremely apathetic and angry because no one will let him play Wagner on the sound system. So that came out about 11 years ago, 10 years ago. And then I got a call from an editor at Adams Media, which is a Simon and Schuster imprint, that they had a they were they needed a satirical nonfiction book about becoming an intellectual, written in about six weeks. Because I guess part of their fall lineup had fallen through, something like that. So I churned that out, and that was my first book. Um, I wrote a couple of other non. <laughs> it's, it's it's weird. It was a very weird, fun project, but that um that was kind of the first time. What was the name of that? It was called How to Become an Intellectual. Um, highly, highly satirical. But the thing that I learned is that trying to be funny, um, on a six week deadline for 70,000 words is not really something I want to repeat again. It was, it was terrifying. Every, every day was terrifying. Um, and I also, I was, I was working as a tech journalist for eWeek. So it was, you know, long day of running around town interviewing people. And then you come home and you have to like, you know, stay up until 2am trying to grind out the daily word count. Um, and then after that, I published a few more nonfiction books. I actually co-wrote a coffee table book on the history of cigars for Playboy and so on. And then I started, I pivoted to fiction in 2017, focused primarily on crime fiction, which is one of my first loves. Great. Well, as you worked on getting your first short stories and novels published, were there any specific writing challenges that you had to overcome or figure out, whether it be characterization or plotting or dialogue? Um, I think that one of my biggest challenges from a fiction perspective has always been plotting, um, just because I, I don't know if it's, 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 I'm trying to think an early editor of mine to kind of, to kind of put this in the most succinct way once said that kind of one of the biggest issues that I have with crime fiction and mystery fiction and so on is that it's, I, I tend to move, I 
by default, I tend to plot in sort of a video game pro, um, progression. You know, character goes here, does this, is told something, character goes to the next place, is told something further, et cetera. So A to B to C to D. Um, so I've been focusing on, you know, shifting up my characters, shifting up my perspectives, generally trying to create plots that aren't so linear and sort of aren't expected, trying to figure out how to structure beats so that they are more surprising to the audience. Um, I've always been comfortable with character and with dialogue and things like that. I mean, plot and kind of creating a sustainable plot over 80, 90, 100,000 words has always sort of been my my big issue. And I still wrestle with it. Um, I used to be a pantser. So I used to like sort of just plow through and hope that the plot sort of worked eventually. And now I am kind of a, a recent and very tight adherent to outlining. Uh, which is something I hated to do, but now I recognize the value of it and also how much time it eventually ends up saving everybody. And is there any particular way that you approach outlining? Was there any books that you looked at about um, outlining or what's the process for you? So in, in terms of the mental game, my initial mistake, and and this is this is perhaps completely atypical of what other writers might do. So instead of plotting things out in intense detail. You know, for example, you have those writers who have kind of a physical board on which they have, you know, plot beats, plot dialogue, details, character details. I try to strike a balance between getting enough of the outline down that I sort of know where the plot is going. I can like sort of reorient and reposition the plot beats and the twists and things like that, but also not putting too much down because what I found, and this is a fault, um, What I found cognitively with me is that if I put too much down, my brain for some reason gets bored with it. It feels that the story has been told and it's out there and that the motivation behind it becomes much harder for me to achieve. So I find that when I actually plot out the broad strokes but don't plot in detail, my brain stays engaged with the narrative um, as opposed to the other way. And I mean, ask me again in a couple of years and I'll probably have evolved into working out every beat. But for right now... I find that outlining is is a question of sort of playing games with myself to kind of keep myself motivated and not sort of accidentally trick my brain into thinking the book has been written before it actually has. Right. So what writing advice would you offer for listeners who are writing their own stories and novels and hope to get them published? So I, I, I think with novels, I would heartily suggest that anybody who has not written a book yet very seriously consider outline. I, th- I know that a lot of people, you get very excited about an idea, you know, you rush into it, you blaze out those first few chapters and everything is going great. And like, you, you think that, you know, you're going to be able to turn this out in a couple of weeks. Outlining, I feel, is ultimately what has saved me in broad strokes as a writer. And I, even if you're not inclined to it, I heartily recommend that you do that. Um, in terms of short stories, which which I write frequently and which I love to write, I think that I, it's it's different it's different plots or different ideas for different kinds of short stories. I think that with novellas, of which I've published a few, I think the same tactics that apply to a novel can often apply. I think outlining is often your friend, even if you feel that you don't need it for a thirty or forty thousand word story. Um, it often turns out that you do. And if you're going shorter, if you're writing flash fiction, for example, I used to be one of the editors of Shotgun Honey, which is a flash fiction website, um, primarily focusing on crime and suspense stories. With shorter stories, you want to think of it almost like a stand-up routine, as if it's something that you know Robin Williams or Pan Oswald or somebody is telling. And the advice that I always give people is that 
think of it, you know, what is your punchline and what are you doing in terms of rocketing your audience towards that punchline as fast as you can? Like, what is your ultimate beat and how is everything sort of being structured to it? Because reviewing thousands upon thousands of shotgun honey submissions, the thing that I found with shorter stories is that people, it's not, despite the relatively short word count, it's not razor sharp. It's not focused. It's not driving towards the point. And so the energy sort of flags immediately. And so if you sit down for your shorter story with the goal or the point in mind and sort of operate towards that and think of it as, you know, you're building towards this point, then oftentimes you'll get a, a, a happy result. That's good advice. So what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? So I actually just finished plowing through the five books collected in one handy volume of uh, Patrick Melrose, which um, also adapted into a relatively mediocre Benedict Cumberbatch series of which I watched one episode on Showtime. But the book is fascinating just because it's it's funny and horrifying in equal measure, uh, more horrifying and less funny as it goes on. But it's it's in terms of over 800 pages or 900 pages, however long it is, sort of keeping a character's internal life interesting as it plows through because it's very easy to bog down when the book is 99% in the character's head. It's, it's, it's an interesting case study in terms of doing that. Um, in terms of nonfiction, uh, Bruce Goldfarb just wrote a really excellent book called 18 Tiny Deaths. It's about Francis Glessner Lee and the invention of modern forensics. Um, it's a fascinating book because we think of, especially crime writers, obviously you're thinking about forensics quite a bit, but you're also thinking about forensics as sort of set science. It's been around for a very long time. And it was eye-opening to me to realize that everything about the history of crime investigation, forensic science, and so on is extraordinarily new. You know, a lot of this stuff is only decades old and kind of the discipline in the science of like medical pathology is not unformed, I would say, but still very much kind of in a state of flux even today, even though we think it's something that's kind of well established. So that was that was a real eye opener to me. And I, I, I heartily recommend that. Um, and for my next novel, I was rereading Norman McLean's Young Men in Fire, because in my next book, there was a huge forest fire. And I think that Young Men in Fire probably has the best sustained descriptions of fire, its devastating effects, and frankly, the terror of it. Um, and so I also give me that reread. I, I recommend all three books highly. I mean, not just for people who are sort of looking for, you know, tips on how to write and so on, but just because all three of them are really good reads. Great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and lock down the pandemic short story anthology you edited, as well as your novels and other short stories? So I, I have a website, uh, nickkolakowski.com. Um, I'm also obviously on, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, all, all those places where you would order a book online, at least until bookstores open. Um, I am on all of those. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Nick Kolakowski, editor of the short story anthology, Lockdown Stories of Crime, Terror and, Hope, Terror and Hope During a Pandemic. The anthology is available now, so go buy a copy. And Nick, thanks for doing this interview. Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. This, this was really fun. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
my guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.